HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wild Alaska Pollock, the fish of the future. Learn more and try a free sample at wildakpollock.com. I'm one of HRN's interns, Nina Medvinskaya, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week's topic, the marriage of food and danger. Sometimes danger lurks in the food that we eat. So instead of saying what is poisonous, I'd rather say what's not because it's literally just the flesh and the fins. Food poisoning doesn't just threaten our bodies, but it endangers our environment as well. The emissions of JBS combined with the other top five meat companies exceed the annual emissions of Exxon, Shell, or BP. For more, tune into this week's Meat and 3 on Heritage Radio Network. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. All right. Yes, folks, it is Monday and it's two o'clock, my new time. Two o'clock. I love that. I love that I'm on two o'clock now because you know why? Because now I can drive down from Rhode Island at my leisure. I don't have to leave the night before and I don't have to leave at dawn. So I love that. So you're listening to What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. Um, And this should have been my last show for the season. But as it turned out, what happened was my guest, unfortunately, was unable to make this date and uh, canceled at the last minute. So actually, I'm just going to chit chat for a little while. Uh, Every once in a while, I like to do a little chit chat show because it's kind of fun to just be me. Um, (laughs) Which is a bit of a mixed bag, frankly. But, you know, it is fun to just be me and not be the interviewer. Um, And so, you know, and behave myself completely, which I try to do when I'm interviewing people. But um, before I really get into the meat and potatoes or the meat plus three of this show... And that, by the way, for those of you who haven't been tuning into our HRN production of this delicious little interstitial piece of programming that we have been producing, not I personally, but our talented staff, it is called Meat Plus Three, um, and it's on our website, and uh, a new one seems to drop every 10 days or so, maybe a little less frequently, Um, but they really are always very interesting and fun. It's a roundup of kind of news uh, around uh, the world, food news. Uh, So, for instance, the most recent one, I think, it appears to be about... um, 
food poisoning. And of course, food poisoning should be high on everybody's list of worries because we have just seen in the last six weeks or so, some of the largest recalls of ground beef in the history of the industry. I kid you not. I mean, we're talking millions of pounds, millions, five, 10 million pounds of ground beef coming from JBS. Um, And JBS, of course, is the giant meat company from based in Brazil. You can learn more about JBS by reading my excellent book, What's the Matter with Meat, available on Amazon. Um, But uh, if you don't know what JBS is, JBS has literally said out loud that they wish to be the largest meat supplier in the world, and they do cattle, beef, and uh, sorry, cattle, pork, and poultry. Um, And so they really are the biggest and they have tentacles all around the world. They have bought land all around the world upon which to wreak their particular form of havoc. Um, But it's been their American plants, actually, not their uh, their plants in in Brazil, although we, I'm not sure if we're importing, we, we we had to stop importing beef from Brazil for a while because of hoof and mouth disease. We may be back on track with that, but in any case, there were two plants in uh, the JBS portfolio in the United States that were pumping out uh, beef that was contaminated with E. coli. And um, I'm not sure which strain of E. coli, because now we have so many uh, and so many um, antibiotic-resistant strains. Um, I'm not sure if it was the dreaded 0157H7 of Jack in the Box fame from 1997. But, um, But in any case, you know... Do yourselves a favor. If you buy ground beef, get a, a whole muscle chunk and get the guy in the grocery store to run it through their grinder. Um, then you just don't run the risk of uh, contamination from one of these big plants because it's really, it's very hard to control for them. I, when you're processing 4,000 um, cattle per day and somebody is contaminated and that gets onto your machinery and you don't know exactly what part of your supply chain of your uh, your production chain that that, uh, that that contamination occurred in it's it's a huge problem for companies to sort that out and you would have thought that by now they'd kind of have that stuff under control but not every plant functions the same they're not all uh, as um, safety conscious perhaps as others um, I'm not going to name any names here but uh, let's put it this way it's it's a constant battle for food safety but at the same time Time. We are constantly undermining our food safety uh, protocols in this country because of the the um, you know the drive for profit. Basically, it's profit over people. The drive to give shareholders more of a share, uh, and that drives almost everything that happens in corporate America today. Um, notwithstanding my next show, which I'm, I just pre-recorded it, so I'm just going to preview for you that I talked to this guy named Bob Langert, uh, who has written a book about sustainability efforts um, by McDonald's. Now, you wouldn't think of McDonald's, and I mean McDonald's of the you know Happy Meal, etc., um, as being a leader in sustainability, but indeed they have. Now, while they have lagged way behind and giving their people a living wage, um, they have been real leaders in the field of, you know, waste reduction, of um, recycle and composting, of uh, a supply chain for fish that is Marine Stewardship Council certified. Uh, They were the ones who employed Temple Grandin to make um, beef production more humane and on and on. So the book is, is quite well written. I'm not sure if I would say that. It was, yes, it was quite well written and uh, it certainly kept my interest all the way through. Uh, It's a little obviously self-serving. It was written by a guy who's retired from McDonald's but worked as their corporate social responsibility officer for 
25 years. And, um, and he, you know, obviously did a great job and he has a lot of interesting things to, uh, to, to say in this interview. Um, I tried not to be too adversarial, but you know, like, I mean, you gotta, you gotta respect a corporation like McDonald's when they go to the effort of changing their supply chain, because as I have been discussing in the previous two or three programs um, to this one, uh, we've been talking about supply chain issues and um, there's really, there's really nothing more important than getting corporations on board with the idea that, uh, you know, it's a good idea to conserve water or it's a good idea to, you know, demand humane uh, treatment of animals and so forth. So, um, you know, I like to support the corporations that are doing the work. I like to, uh, I like to um, show what they are doing. I think people should be more mindful of how long it takes for some corporations with uh, the kind of um, numbers of outlets and franchisees and so forth that a McDonald's has, for example, um, it's just an incredibly big task and it takes more than six months or a year. It can take up to 10 years, as you've seen. And, and consumers have had a huge impact on people because they have, in fact, many of these corporations have, in fact, changed their supply chain. Panera has changed their supply chain. They're another big leader in the corporate world. Um, if you didn't uh, catch that show, I think it was last week or you know, a couple weeks ago, um, that's definitely worth listening to as well, to talk about sort of how they come up with their standards, their protocols, how they uh, encourage their suppliers to work with them. It's, 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 a, it's a slow moving process, but it is a process that is moving. And I think that's something um, that we should rejoice in because that is really largely consumer driven. And you guys should all pat yourselves on the back if you're the ones who are, you know, asking your grocery store, where's my meat coming from? Or, um, you know, demanding that uh, there's transparency in a supply chain, whether it's in a fast food restaurant or in a high fine dining restaurant or or in your local grocery store. Those are all the things that you want to be in touch with because after all, you are what you eat, people. Um, so anyway, I I am literally winging this show. So you'll forgive me if I'm like, I, don't, I didn't even drink coffee and I still seem to be talking at about 80 or 40, 90 miles per hour, which pretty much uh, reflects my drive from Rhode Island because that is where I normally live nowadays. I come down to New York so I can do this show and see my family. Um, <clears throat> and um, that may change, actually. I'm still doing that, but, I, um, but I'm going to be given a piece of equipment so I don't have to do it as often. I'm really kind of excited about that because then I'm going to be able to take my equipment, whatever that may be, some kind of a microphone, and, um, and take it all around where I am, wherever I go. And that includes, here's my big announcement, um, that includes that I'm going to be spending a month in Spain. And you might think that sounds very decadent and um, like I'm rich or something. Actually, nothing could be further from the truth. The reason I am doing it and don't laugh at me about my sense of economics, but I am going to Spain for a month so that I can save money on fuel because it cost so much to heat my house last winter. So it's cheaper to live abroad. <laughs> Isn't that so great? Anyway, so that's what I'm doing. But in the meantime, I did a, I did a little bit of, um, you know, I get this great newsletter actually. It's called Above the Fold, and um, and it's published by, let me make sure I get this right, because I don't want to tell you the wrong thing. Um, it is published by uh, the uh, Environmental, I think it's called the Environmental Health News. Yes, that's it, Environmental Health News. And if, it's a free subscription. 
And they are just fabulous. And they're, it's another um, group. It's kind of like Fern, another favorite of mine, the um, Food and Environmental Reporting or Food and Environment Reporting Network. I love them as well. They produce a lot of original writing, but they also aggregate other uh, writing. Civil Eats is another fantastic journal. These are all places where I get my information uh, about what is happening in the world of environment, um, climate change, uh, you know, food chains, et cetera. And I, I really really, really, really recommend the environmental health news. I just love it. Um, so one of the things that's, that, that caught my eye in today's um, issue is that Congress is finally probably going to legalize hemp in the farm bill. And the reason I found that particularly interesting is back in uh, 2014, I think it was, let me just look this up. Oh, damn, where is it? Here it is. In 2014, I interviewed a guy named Doug Fine, who's an aging hippie who lives out in Arizona. And he is he has been waiting for the glowing moment when hemp becomes legalized in this country because he is all ready to grow it. He's probably already growing it. Um, and he wrote a book called Hemp Bound, Dispatches from the Front Lines of the Next Agricultural Revolution. Now, if I could find, you could probably find this episode on iTunes um, or Stitcher because we were on that platform. I can't seem to find it on our, our website, but hopefully that will be remedied in the coming year after you've all given us money so that we can update our website. Um, and we'll be giving you a long pitch about that in just a few minutes. But anyway... Um, Doug was a fantastic guest, and he wrote about the advantages to bringing hemp into a main, as a mainstream uh, commodity production, because hemp, as he points out in this book, is an unbelievably versatile fiber, um, or, or unbelievably versatile plant, in the sense that, well, of course, now we're all all over hemp for the CBD oil. I don't think he was even talking about that in 2014, believe it or not. But what he saw it for was paper, so paper instead of trees, uh, Instead of making paper out of trees, you make it out of hemp. Fiber for your clothing, right? So you're not growing cotton, you're growing hemp, which is a much more uh, earth-friendly crop. Um, and by the way, this, believe it or not, would absolutely bail out the state of Kentucky, which is the, the strain of hemp that is most uh, widely used and was has been used in years and centuries for sail making and rope making. That is in fact an indigenous plant. I believe it's indigenous, but in any case, it grows extremely well in the state of Kentucky. So imagine if Mitch McConnell were not such a flaming a-hole. He could have converted his entire production of from coal to hemp, and everybody would be happy, and they'd all be making money. And furthermore, this guy points out that the Canadians have been poised. They bought land from the United States in the states of North and South Dakota upon which to grow hemp because even way back in 2014, we're talking five years now, they have a 23 or $24 billion a year business growing and processing hemp. And it's also usable for food um, and it is also usable for, um, what was it I missed? I said clothing. Oh, building materials. Hell yeah. You can turn that stuff into some form of concrete, apparently. It's like mushrooms. It's another miracle fiber that can be literally used for almost anything you want to use it for. Um, and it is endlessly adaptable. It has uh, a very little carbon footprint. It sequesters carbon really well. It doesn't require a lot of fertilizer or pesticides, all the things that have been destroying the water quality of our nation and around the world. So um, I, I recommend, I mean, you can still buy this book on Amazon. It's $8.98, I see here. Um, and it's it was a really fun read. And he was a very interesting guy. So look for my program uh, about a 
Doug Fine is his name, and the book Hemp Bound. It should be on uh, the iTunes platform. So that that was one story that really caught my eye um, in today's Above the Fold. Um, and then there was another one that really um, that really caught my eye, and that was a, a piece uh, that came from Scientific American, um, and it's called Vanishing Nutrients. Well, just to pat myself on the back here, I interviewed a wonderful reporter named Helena Botmiller, Helena Evich Botmiller. Bot Miller, B-O-T-T-E-M-I-L-L-E-R. Super, super smart woman who writes for Politico. And she is one of the lead writers for their morning ag uh, feature, which is part of the whole political portfolio. She's a wonderful writer. She was a great interview. And again, this is, if you didn't hear the episode, I highly recommend it. And she wrote a piece last year about how essentially with the carbon load that we have and the, uh, the sort of the diminishing quality of our soils, uh, we are running the risk of losing a lot of the nutrient qualities from these crops that we grow, particularly the ones that we monocrop. So I haven't read this article from Scientific American, but I, I have no doubt that it will simply repeat what Helena has already said so ably. Um, but it's, you know, crops that are as varied as wheat, uh, corn, soybeans, field peas, you know, they all contain less proteins and less minerals, I, I suppose because part of it is that we have reduced the nutrients in the soil by, you know, overly um, monocropping or, you know, just having a, a two-crop rotation, which is really they're finding more and more is a no-no. Really need to have three crops go in plus a cover crop. Now, whether uh, U.S. ag will adopt that model, the jury is still out. I know there's a lot of people in the sustainability world that are heavily promoting that to farmers. And a lot of farmers who are personally finding that after having followed this model that we have of mono or duo cropping of soybean and sorn, of soybean and corn... you know that that they have they have reached the point where their soil is uh, extremely depleted and they're not getting the crop yields that they once were, despite the heavy use of fertilizer. And we all know what that's doing to the nation's waterways. So, um, so they are uh, often adopting some of those three crop rotations, or they're certainly adding uh, cover crops. They're adding uh, a no-till feature to the way they plant. Um, I had one guy on here earlier this year. I, oh, it was Francis Tickey, who I absolutely adore. Dord, who is an organic dairy farmer in Iowa. And of course, he grows his own feed because he's an organic dairy farmer. And he has developed this whole system of basically rolling over whatever he had planted before once whatever the you know product is hard, whether it's wheat or oats or whatever. And he just rolls over the grass or the the, the stalks that remain. And, and that becomes eventually part of the soil. And then he plants in that stuff. And it acts basically as a mulch to prevent weed growth. And then you don't have to use herbicides, which is also a really good thing, right? So that's um, so that, there's that story that's worth going back to. Basically, I'm doing a little like roundup of cool programs and cool things that I liked that I did because <laughs> it's all about me, folks. You know, I say that in jest, but I'm not really kidding. I really mean it. It's true. Um, where else would I get to talk, you know, just ad nauseum? Nobody in my family, none of my friends want to hear me go blah, blah, blah about this stuff. It's amazing how people just tune it out. And yet to me, it is so compelling. I mean, it's just the most important thing in the world is being able to have fresh, clean water and healthy food to eat. And the only way you do that is, is 
is by, you know, paying attention to that stuff. So some of you may have paid attention enough to notice that I did a whole series on water quality issues in the United States. And I'm going to stay with that topic. I'm not going to give up on it. I kind of got distracted by the, the sort of, you know, corporate supply chain and how some companies are doing a great job of moving that uh, needle forward on, on better, better practices. But um, I really do feel like we need to, every single one of us, pay the closest attention possible to the ramifications of decisions that are made in Washington. Um, and that includes the gutting of the EPA. And that also includes, you know, paying attention to what farmers are doing, whether it's your own local guys or whether it's guys out in Iowa. You know, it's, it's, it, we're all in this together. And somehow that has been, that fact has been, um, overlooked in favor of um, the capitalist. See, here, here's another one. I'm going back to one of my favorite new hobby horses. Because one of my favorite interviews that I think I did this year, or maybe it was early last year, um, was with um, the guy who wrote A Foodie's Guide to Capitalism, which was a very interesting um, Eric Holt Jimenez is the author. And that was a terrific book. If you're looking for an interesting book to give as a gift, highly recommend A Foodie's Guide to Capitalism, in which he describes basically that capitalist, capitalism is a model that has failed. And even though when I read the book, it made me really squirm and really uncomfortable, but as I have thought about it over the course of the year um, and had other conversations with um, sort of like-minded individuals, including his his friend and, and often and uh, fellow author Raj Patel, um, you know, he's right. The extractive form of uh, commerce, the extractive form of how we do business, whether it's, you know, it doesn't really matter what it is, whether it's paper, whether it's food, whether it's manufacturing, it's all about extracting resources. It's not about putting things back to replace them. And here is where the rubber is going to meet the road because we will run out of water. Um, that's, you know, that is one of the big issues around animal uh, husbandry and livestock farming. Uh, we don't have enough water to uh, continue to grow the crops that we use to feed them. And um, we don't have enough arable land to keep growing those crops. Uh, as people's desire for meat it grows around the world, it's kind of flatlined here in the States. But believe me, the rest of the developing world is really interested in having chicken every day or beef or well, pork, depending. But, I mean, you know, who doesn't love bacon? So anyway, that was an interesting story, um, I thought, uh, and I uh, another program that I highly recommend. Also, my conversation with Raj Patel last year was absolutely amazing. I just, I mean, the guy is the smartest thing I've ever encountered, literally. He was, you know, I, I couldn't keep up with him. And that's saying something. I mean, not to toot my own horn about how smart I am, but I am really smart. And I just could not keep up with this guy. His, I, my head was exploding. I felt like Howard Dean. <laughs> That famous moment in the Democratic convention when he screams because he has too many things going in his brain. I literally did the same thing to poor Raj Patel, but he took it with, he definitely took it well. <laughs> but anyway, the other thing I want to talk about is, is, is the fact that we're going to, we, to go back to this water thing, because I'm not going to give up on that subject. But another piece that I saw today in this above the fold newsletter is that, um, in a, in a newsletter, which I hadn't noticed before, called Science News for Students, which is kind of cool if you have teenagers at home, this is a good one. And it was talking, it reminded me of the fact that last year, if you recall, the city of Cape Town in South Africa uh, came extremely close to being completely out of water. 
Now, I don't know what the population of Cape Town is, but I'm assuming it's in the millions. It's a major city in South Africa. And these um, sub-Saharan countries are really taking it on the chin with drought and they're running out of water. Well, we are going to be in the same boat. That was a cautionary tale for the United States, which very few people, in my opinion, made enough of a a story about. Um, We already are running into serious problems. People who own homes in California know this. People who own homes in Texas know it. Um, And Arizona. I mean, all these dry states that have encountered drought and, uh, you know, the the sort of diminution of the big water bodies, uh, Lake Mead, Lake Powell, way, way down in terms of how much water Water is left in those reservoirs. This is a problem that we simply are ignoring. You know, our legislators are ignoring this, in my opinion. Now, it's not just because we have Donald Trump as a president. I mean, this is an ongoing issue that has not been paid attention to by our legislators, and they are always the slowest ones to pick up on stuff like that. It's more, it's it's often corporations who uh, hire somebody like my guest next week, uh, Bob Langert, As a corporate social responsibility officer who realizes, oh my God, the way we use water is completely crazy. And there are a number of organizations around the country who have been doing the yeoman's work of helping to educate corporate leaders uh, on some of the issues that they are going to face in the coming decades, particularly regarding water use. And one of those great organizations is called Ceres, as in the goddess, um, C-E-R-E-S. It's based in Boston. I interviewed one of their principals uh, who wrote a report about three or four years ago that's been updated. I was trying to get them back and it just, we couldn't get the timing right, but maybe this coming year. Um, they have updated their, uh, their, their report on corporate use of water. It was called Drinking Ourselves Thirsty. And, um, they are a, a corporation that, or, or an NGO that is really, really doing some some excellent work with corporate uh, strategy and how to, um, you know, how to guide corporations in minimizing their water use and their water waste, especially. So um, those are just some of the things I'm thinking about. I'm going to do some programming from Spain. I hope. <clears throat> I was uh, recently. Um, learned about a growing movement in Spain of um, activists who are trying to shut down the burgeoning pork industry, which is adopting, of course, the U.S. model of of confined housing. And um, not only will that change the quality of Spanish ham, which I don't think they're going to like very much, um, but it's also presenting them with the same problems that we have in terms of managing waste, uh, animal welfare, and so forth. So I'm going to be connecting with some of those activists, and I I really hope I'll be able to do at least maybe an interview with somebody, assuming that they speak English, um, but at least report on what is going on over there, because um, I think that's a major, major issue. Oh, yes. I've just been reminded I need to take a short sponsor break. <laughs> I always forget, especially because I do pre-record one show. And so, you know, it doesn't anyway. So it's time for a sponsor drop. So stay tuned and I'll be right back with a little bit more uh, lanyap to this episode. episode is brought to you by Wild Alaska Pollock, the fish of the future. Wild Alaska Pollock is incredibly delicious, highly nutritious, and perpetually sustainable. Among the last frontier's many natural wonders, Wild Alaska Pollock just might be the state's best-kept secret. 
This cousin to cod has lean, snowy white meat, delicate texture, and a mild flavor that makes it extremely versatile and tasty. Only pollock caught in Alaskan waters by U.S. fishermen can be labeled wild Alaska pollock. Unlike other pollock products, wild Alaska pollock is filleted and frozen just once within hours of being caught to preserve freshness, flavor, and texture. And now, food service professionals can try wild Alaska pollock for free. Request your sample at wildakpollock.com and discover the fish of the future. That's wildakpollock.com. Next year, Heritage Radio Network is turning 10. For the last decade, we've been committed to bringing listeners around the world the very best in food radio for free. Our small staff and incredible network of hosts work hard so that listeners can tune in each week to hear the important conversations in food policy, stay on the cutting edge of cocktail culture, and hear the latest updates in food tech. But there is no HRN without the support of listeners like you. Become a member of Heritage Radio Network today and help HRN get a strong start to our second decade. Choose from exclusive member gifts and stay in the loop on discounts to upcoming events. There's no better time to show your support. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and wish HRN a happy birthday. And this is What Doesn't Kill You Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. And just by the way, folks, I've been here for 10 years. Come March of 2019, that's my 10-year anniversary. And for those of you who didn't listen to me back then, that's probably a good thing. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, but when I first started here, I started with the main course. And I um, I did a show with Patrick Martins, who founded the station and who is the founder and uh, CEO of Heritage Foods USA, where hopefully you buy all of your sustainable meats um, because they really are excellent. Little plug for Patrick there. Um, yeah, we started, we did these completely chaotic and insane shows. They were like two hours long, which is, you know, longer than anyone has a right to demand somebody's attention. <clears throat> uh, alcohol was heavily featured <laughs> and we would, what would happen is we'd come in on a Sunday and Patrick, who would have been out carousing the night before, go visiting the restaurants that he supplies and so forth and chatting with his pals, all the chefs that, that worked in those restaurants, he would show up here at noon <laughs> with like six or seven people that I had never met, never heard of, had no idea we would jump down a few notes of what we would talk about. And then we'd come in here and bore the bejesus out of people for two hours, everyone except for ourselves, of course. Well, we did graduate from that and the main course got a lot more serious. And I moved on and I started a show called Straight No Chaser, which was pretty much the same show as I'm doing now. I just changed the name because I had to change the music because I had been using that Thelonious Monk piece, which I really love. And um, <clears throat> we, we, we realized that we could no longer uh, use uh, musical material like that without having to pay a royalty. Um, so we stopped. And um, and now we just have original composers who give us the right to play their music. So that's how that's how sustainable we are. But um, just to second that emotion from um, the sponsor drop, this is our end of the year fundraiser. We need $150,000 uh, to revamp our website, uh, to improve our studio facilities and to pay our staff. Um, 
many of us do not get paid, including myself, and that's fine. I'm okay with that. I don't mind doing this because, frankly, if I didn't do this, I would just shrivel up like a raisin or a fig. I mean, where would I put my massive curiosity to work if I wasn't able to uh, research and then talk about all of these interesting topics like where our food comes from and how corporations play into our food system and how they control it and how they don't. And well, that's a lie. They do. Um, but anyway, so, you know, please support the station. Um, not just because I love doing what I'm doing. Cause I would probably just, <laughs> I would probably just talk to my cats. <laughs> Wouldn't that be so pathetic? Um, <clears throat> maybe some of you wish I just would do that, but anyway, I, I hope not. If you listen to the show, then you probably have been listening for a while. You probably don't mind too much. My kind of crazy, um, my kind of crazy style of being an interviewer, but uh, I do the best I can. And I, I love and support this station. I think the programming on here is absolutely wonderful. It is unique. Um, there is no other station in the world like this. There is Food France Radio, Radio Food France, um, which is also a podcast, which I subscribe to, but um, it doesn't do what we do. Absolutely not. Um, we do interview chefs and so do they, but they're, they're not covering the kinds of things that we do. They don't do the cocktail culture. They don't do uh, the politics. They don't do the, the trends, the hospitality, the publicity. I mean, you know, this is such, a, such an incredible array of amazing programming. Um, so I, 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 I do hope that you will uh, hit the beating heart on our website. Um, give a membership as a gift for Christmas, uh, subscribe and you will, you know, you'll get presents. Um, you'll get notifications about the events that we are involved in. Uh, like for instance, our winter gala last week, which was absolutely incredible. We had amazing restaurants and amazing cocktails, um, in a beautiful setting. I mean, it was so much fun with the wonderful DJ cherish the love as our, um, musical impresario. I mean, <clears throat> I really had a great time and I don't usually like that kind of stuff. So um, I think that's all for Katie today. And that's uh, next week was a pre-record. So you can just say, um, have a happy holiday then. And have a happy holiday. I'll see you back on the other side. Uh, it'll be 2019 when we speak again. Um, and we will probably be speaking with the absolutely wonderful Marion Nessel, uh, who has a brand new book out. And I'm looking forward to that. So thanks for listening, folks. Uh, all the best for the new year. And uh, I love you for supporting the station. Thank you so much. Bye-bye for now. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.